not everyone's gonna get this. Great day to you. This is Great Transforms. I am Travis Gray. Today we are transforming with our guest, Dr. Stephen Taylor. Stephen is a prolific scholar in the field of transpersonal psychology. Stephen was the chair of the transpersonal psychology section of Br the British Society. He has published several books on psychology and spirituality, including The Leap, Spiritual Science, and more. Eckhart Tolle tells us that his work is an important contribution to the shift in consciousness. Dr. Taylor's latest publication is Disconnected, The Roots of Human Cruelty and How Human Connection Can Heal the World. I'm excited to have this conversation with Dr. Stephen Taylor because I have ran into his articles so many times over the years. A prolific scholar in the field of transpersonal psychology. Thank you so much, Stephen. How are you? I'm great, Travis. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be with you. Absolutely. How did you end up in this field? How, how do you? How did you become such a prolific scholar? You, you've always been interested in writing. You've always been interested in spirituality. How did those two things come together? How did you find the field of transpersonal psychology? The first time I heard the term transpersonal psychology was in a book by Ken Wilber. And th this was probably, you know, was, um, I was probably in my early 30s at the time. So this is about 20 years ago. And and as soon as I saw this term transpersonal psychology, I thought, hmm, this sounds like me, you know. And I thought, then I read more about it, what it meant, what it dealt with. I thought, this is exactly what I'm doing. This is exactly where I'm meant to be. I had this really powerful sense of, being at home in this field of transpersonal psychology, because I'd always been interested in spirituality um, from being a teenager, from reading books about mysticism and um, Buddhism and meditation and going along to talks, as the talks of spiritual groups. So I, I was always interested in spirituality. And the, at the same time, I was always interested in psychology and philosophy. I was always, always had a kind of like a slightly academic side to my to my mind, you know. Um, so, so when I when I found about found out about transpersonal psychology, it was you know it was a perfect marriage, you know, the the marriage of psychology and spirituality. It was exactly what I was meant to be doing. So, at that time, I was not an academic, but I I went back to university to do a master's degree in in transpersonal psychology. Luckily, or well, well, maybe it was not maybe it wasn't just look but i found out there was there was a master's degree only 30 miles away from me i live in manchester in england and this master's degree was in liverpool which is very close so it was, it was perfect you know and i stayed on to do a phd after my, my master's degree and then i became a, a researcher and lecturer in transpersonal psychology that's that's awesome. It's fascinating that you found transpersonal psychology through Ken Wilber's work. I know that other people have as well, but um, he has, you know, transitioned or over the years he transitioned into a specific focus in integral psychology, which mm -hmm. I often think are very synonymous. That uh, there there are there are very slight nuanced differences in the ways of using those terms. Uh, but uh, mm. but really fascinating and powerful work of uh, of Ken Wilber. How did you how, how did how, the Liverpool uh, master's degree in transpersonal psychology has that been there a long time? Um, yeah, it was started by uh, a guy called Les Lancaster, who was uh, one of the oh, kind yeah. of yeah you, you you're probably familiar with him. Uh, he now runs here. the Aleph Trust. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and he's for a long time he's been one of the most sort of well-known British transpersonal psychologists. Absolutely. So it was him and a guy called Mike Daniels who was also a well-known British. So that the, the two of them started this course probably in the the mid early nineties, probably early nineties, I think. Awesome. So um, yeah, it, 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 for a long time it was the main centre of transpersonal psychology in the UK there in Liverpool, but unfortunately now. The course, well, actually, there's been a kind of uh, a full circle because the university stopped the transpersonal psychology course about 10 years ago, but now it's come back through the Aleph Trust. The Aleph, Tr the Aleph Trust is associated with the with Liverpool John Morse University. So there is a link now between 
the LF Trust and uh, Liverpool. Awesome. Awesome. So, uh, so now um, you've just recently published this new book, Disconnected, um, and it's about this relationship between the, the disconnected society, maybe of our past and our current, there's a lot of disconnection in our society. <laughs> And and we and we find that this is that it, this is connected to these ideas of patriarchy and and hierarchical structure, societal dominance, and and things mm. like this. And then and then we have also, I think we have a, a growing population of people all over the modern world with this in this age of information that are becoming more and more awakened and you know the quote-unquote awakened but but having this sense of altruistic knowing of the interconnectedness in the Mm -hmm. world and and so can you tell us a little bit more about what that book disconnected is about it's based on a model of mine which i call the continuum of connection and that has a kind of, it can be applied to individuals and it can also be applied to societies. So individually, we move from extreme disconnection, which is equivalent to psychopathy or an extreme lack of empathy, a complete lack of empathy, which manifests itself in brutality, cruelty, and so forth. So that's one side of it. And the other extreme is awakening, awakening or wakefulness or enlightenment. Enlightenment or wakefulness is a sense of union, a sense of intense connection with other human beings, with the world itself, with nature, with the whole cosmos. So I, I think of psychopathy, psychopathy is, is basically a, a, a complete lack of empathy for other beings. You know, it's a complete, a complete state of separation, a state of extreme ego isolation. That's actually the, the polar opposite of the wakeful or enlightened state, which is where there are no boundaries between the self and the world or between the self and other beings and between those two extremes you have you know what we call normality you know normal human beings normal human beings are capable of some degree of empathy um but they can also behave selfishly and egotistically so i think you know spiritual development is is about traveling along the continuum of connection from disconnection towards increased connection which manifests itself in increased empathy increased compassion increased altruism so there's a, there's also a link between criminality. Criminal there are lots of causes of criminality, but criminality is linked to a lack of empathy. You know that's why it manifests itself in in brutality and violence, and it it, it manifests itself also in, on a social level, on, on a political level. I've got a couple of chapters where I talk about the phenomenon of the pathocracy, which is when the people I call hyper-disconnected, extremely disconnected people with a, a complete lack of empathy are drawn towards positions of political power. So they often end up, you know, constituting the governments of nations. So people like Stalin and Hitler are, are extreme examples, but there are, there are obviously lots of examples in the modern world too, including in, in my country, the UK, unfortunately. But yeah, so the, there are all sort of, the, there are different manifestations of um, human nature and human behavior in terms of this continuum of connection and on a social level you know you have extremely disconnected societies which are extremely patriarchal extremely hierarchical authoritarian you know low status for women they are they are often uh, very sexually repressive very monotheistic intensely monotheistic in a a fundamentalist way then you have sort of um, more connected societies which tend to be more egalitarian you know, in, in terms of um, male and female influence, and also generally less hierarchical, more democratic, less authoritarian, more sexually open, and less usually less religious as well, you know, so, so again, the, there's this continuum of connection moving from extremely disconnected to more connected societies. And, you know, many societies are in the middle of that continuum, like I'd probably say that the UK societies like the UK and America are probably somewhere in the middle of that continuum. Do you think that maybe on a government level, uh, that that there there's like a difference between the the societal experience of being, for for example, being in America or being in the UK? That there's that there's an experience that's maybe more interconnected. Maybe you feel more connection to your neighbor. 
but then recognizing possibly that the governmental structure that is overarching is is incredibly disconnected possibly yeah i mean you could think of it in countries like um let's say china or russia in countries like china and russia there is a certain degree of equality between the genders um a certain degree of sexual openness and but the political structures of those societies are extremely authoritarian extremely non-democratic so there is a kind of a disconnect there between ordinary people's experience and but i think that can be explained in terms of pathocracy that most of the government of china and russia like other governments around the world it, are made up of you know what you could call dark triad personalities with high levels of uh, psychopathic narcissistic tendencies machiavellian tendencies you know especially in non-democratic societies positions of political power all are almost always filled with those people because they're they're the most ruthless they're the most you know they, they feel the strongest desire for power they're willing to exploit manipulate and even kill other people in their in their quest for power so unfortunately you always end up with those people in positions of power in more democratic societies there's less likelihood of dark tribe personalities filling positions of power but it is still you know it's still quite prevalent it, it seems that when i'm in my travels around the world that the people outside of the country of the united states of america they tend to they tend to see americans as inherently narcissistic inherently independent and and having a having a sense of uh, problem a sense of uh, disconnection, uh, feeling that, oh, Americans are so disconnected and so, and so narcissistic, having these sort of dark mm. triad personality qualities. Um, do, do you, what, what, what do you make of that, that impression that others are getting from Americans? Well, I mean, America is quite a competitive society. I mean, it's kind of, it's founded on the notion of individualism, I guess. But I'm, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I know lots of Americans who are not particularly narcissistic. Yeah. Maybe there are some sort of cultural trends. Maybe there are sort of a certain degree of self of cultural conditioning. And I mean, like Europeans, particularly English people, tend to be we're conditioned to be quite reserved and and quite kind of self-deprecating. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe there are slight differences, but I, I I don't really think that beyond a certain degree of cultural conditioning, I'm not sure if there's much difference really. Maybe maybe. You know, if you live in the Midwest, uh, in the sort of in away from the coast of America, maybe you're less connected to global trends. Maybe you're slightly more insular. Maybe that's a factor. You know, whereas if you live in an island, in an island like Britain, where there are, you know there are lots of there's lots of influences from other countries, and you know, lots of um, waves of immigration over the centuries, bringing lots of new cultural norms and so forth maybe, maybe that makes us slightly less insular i'm not sure yeah d definitely a lot of uh, a lot of interesting uh, intricate nuances and dynamics and ways that people could be influenced to be one way or another i'm actually from the midwest i'm from like the heart of america oh uh, yeah nebraska iowa area and uh and i and there's the there's a school in in Iowa that is uh, about transcendental meditation. I can't remember the, the name of it. I didn't find out that that school existed. And it's sort of in the center of Iowa, which is in sort of the center of America. I didn't find out about that until I moved away. So um, huh. it, it's it's interesting how just like this can, uh, this can be seen, you know, like um, uh, Texas, um, maybe you don't know this, but uh, Texas, um, Austin, Texas is sort of in uh, very, very close to center of Texas, but it's a blue, it's a blue uh, community uh, in a red state. And so uh, the red state tends to be very, um, uh, very rural uh, in, in like the, 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 uh, the larger landscape of the state of Texas. 
and 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 there's 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 judgments that are made between red and blue and and things like this and i i really am not a fan of the of the rigid dichotomy of these things um mm-hmm. that, that is and and it's just it, it aligns with my my name like this is gray transforms this is about weaving together these things um yeah. I, you know, i'd rather be purple than blue or red uh things like this so um, and, and I think that that really aligns with this field of transpersonal psychology. But do you think that people in this field or spiritual people or people that can be awakened is, uh, do, do you think that there, there could be a spiritual bypassing that, that, that continues to make people, may, maybe that people will convince themselves of their their altruistic uh, qualities and their and their and their tendencies towards this connection and knowing the interconnectedness mm, of the mm. world, and at the same time separate themselves from those that are that are maybe not as uh, as mm. open to the information of this interconnectedness and spirituality. Mm, mm. I'm not sure if that's a particular issue with transpersonal psychology itself. Yeah. But I think it's an issue with spirituality in general. Mm-hmm. You know, I've met a lot of spiritual people who, yeah, they are quite narcissistic. And, you know, that, you know, so, sometimes if you get involved in spirituality, you, you think that you're, you know, you, 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 you sort of gain this special knowledge which separates you from other people, which makes you superior to others. So people feel they're a bit, you know, they're a member of a special clique. Um, that that can happen, but it's, it, it's also encouraged by gurus. There are many, you know, I, I mentioned earlier about pathocracy, how people with dark triad traits are drawn to political power. They're also drawn to to be spiritual teachers. You know, there, there are many corrupt spiritual teachers, too many, way too many. And basically, if you've got a desire for power, if you're a dark, dark triad personality, then, you know, to be a spiritual teacher is your ideal, is the ideal occupation, you know. It's even better than being a dictator because you can form your own little cult or community, which is isolated from the outside world. You can sort of transcend all normal notions of morality. You can you can create an atmosphere of unconditional devotion amongst your followers. So there there are many spiritual teachers who who are or have been, um, <clears throat> you know, corrupt in that sense. <clears throat> I mean, there are there are obviously some genuine spiritual teachers too, but unfortunately, you know, there are some some exceptions to that, and and I think many followers of spiritual teachers encourage that. You know, there are many followers of gurus who who want to believe that their gurus are perfect beings, who infallible beings, who are entitled to transcend normal normality, and when they behave when they behave in appalling ways, it's some kind of divine test or, or some kind of um, divine play or, you know, it's so that they make excuses for their guru's behaviors because they want to remain in the state of unconditional devotion. I call it the abdication syndrome. It's when you, you abdicate responsibility for your own life and hand it to your guru or to your cult leader, or even to your political leader. And you, you can return to a state of childhood. You you can return to that state of early childhood when your parents were perfect, infallible beings who looked after you and took responsibility for you and organized everything for you. So people switch into that kind of inf- inf- <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> infantile state, and it's a it's a it's a very pleasant state to be in, you know. Uh, and it's it's very you know it's very appealing. So that that I think that's why so many people are willing to follow corrupt teachers. Yeah, yeah, it can definitely be appealing to have no needs, no necessity of responsibility in one's life for for the ways that maybe your your thought process or or your sort of perspective that you've been influenced and impacted by so strongly it is created the dynamics of your community and your family and your and the, and the way that you are living your life it can be mm. a great experience to have all of the maybe the misnomers or the mistakes that are involved in that sort of way of thinking 
<clears throat> to to just abdicate that to your spiritual guru um, yeah i like that yeah so yeah it's, it's a strange paradox really because spirituality is about connection and spiritual awakening is about becoming connected or, or united to other beings or to the world itself and some of the people who masquerade as being enlightened are actually you know extremely disconnected people so they're, they're really disconnected people masquerading as connected people and um yeah so it's it's not it's not genuine spirituality at all yeah yeah and and i i, I like that you you pointed that the field of transpersonal psychology is is very encompassing and integrative and 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 seeks to understand the perennial philosophy that is within all of these different spiritual traditions so it it, it tends to it tends to sort of like heal itself from the potential of that of that spiritual narcissism at times i not not to say mm. that it can't also exist it can just also exist anywhere but that that um also that that like spiritual bypassing is is a, kind of less likely to be there when it's when it's um grounded in scientific rigor and and just looking to be very articulate and and defined and understanding of these the different ways that all of this can be weaved together mm, you mm. you had a uh, an article that was that i was originally inspired by your work um that was uh called the it was called pre and trans the the pre and trans fallacy and uh right, right now you just spoke about the like the childhood the childlikeness and things and i i think something about your article that was that was fascinating to me was that uh and and that that resonated to me and um and you can let me know if i'm if i'm getting this right that it, it sounds it sounds to me like there is there is value in the in the the spiritual there is like the spiritual worthy valueness in being a child you're you're fresh from creation you 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 haven't uh, maybe you know like zero to five or or early you, you you haven't you haven't necessarily created the ego experience this this uh, mm -hmm. persona is not fully developed so you're just you're just kind of fresh and open to the world you're open to the experience of the world um but then as an adult when when this comes full circle and you you've you've went through maybe maybe an experience of having created the per persona having created the ego and then and then that has developed along some sort of trajectory and maybe there's been mistakes and you've recognized the shadows and done uh, some of these works and and then and then on the other side kind of ex had more transpersonal like experiences but then it the 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 having went through that ego trip <laughs> having gone through that ego trip during your life mm -hmm. having um and then come out on to the other side it seems like there's there's even more value there's even more you you in the in the article you wrote about it being intense your or the level of intensity uh being different and um i i wonder i wonder if you could elaborate on this yeah, I mean the, the the article was um you know I was I was arguing against Wilbur's kind of hierarchical view of spiritual development right, which right. which is you know, he he associates spiritual development with transegoic development you know you have to develop an ego and then you transcend the ego and then you enter you can enter the realm of transpersonal development but but I've I've always felt and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that children you know there there are, there are many aspects of the childhood state particularly the early childhood state which are kind of recaptured in, in spiritual development, you know. Then there, there are there there are genuinely spiritual aspects of childhood which we lose as we enter adulthood. So I mean, the, probably the best example is children's uh, children's incredibly intense perception of the world around them. They have this incredibly fresh, vivid perception. You know, the world is such such an incredibly real place to children. It's full of suchness. You know, I think it's partly because children haven't developed. Uh, a conceptual understanding of the world they don't see the world through the prism of language so they they see the kind of the naked isness of the world and that's why children are so invigorated and so exhilarated by you know mundane so-called mundane phenomena which adults barely pay attention to 
so we, we we recapture that in spiritual development you know we it's as if a veil of familiarity falls away and suddenly the world is beautiful and vivid and real again and um, and also the fact that children are intensely present you know they don't live in the past or future the past or future don't really exist to them and also the fact that children have this incredible natural vitality this energy um michael wash you know the transpersonal psychologist michael washburn he writes about this very well i think yeah um, I, i'm sure his but all of the authors that you've already mentioned are here like uh kim wilber yeah. is in this section oh, michael yeah. washburn is probably somewhere here michael daniels is here les lancaster is somewhere oh here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they're all there yeah, but he, he writes about this really well, how uh, how children are in contact with the, the divine ground. I think because of the divine ground, if I remember rightly. But we lose that. Once the adult ego develops, we become alienated from the divine ground. And so we lose that, that kind of radiance and vitality which children have. And also in the process, we lose that intense perception and we start to live in abstraction. We start to become alienated from the present by li living in the past and future. So yeah, so as we move into adulthood, we become alienated from the divine ground. But but through spiritual development, we recapture those elements. You know, we we, we recapture that vivid perception, that nowness, that vitality and inner radiance. But you know that that doesn't mean that children are enlightened. You know, anybody who has got children knows that they are not enlightened. <laughs> they are, you know, they, they have characteristics of wakefulness, but they can also be very narcissistic. And th so there are certain aspects of adult wakefulness which children lack you know for example uh, that all-embracing sense of empathy that global perspective on reality that comes with with adult development so what we get in kind of adult transpersonal spiritual development is a kind of integration of certain higher qualities with those childhood qualities of natural wakefulness so it's a, it's a kind of you know in a higher level integrated wakefulness you know, it's a kind of uh, a, a cyclical development, recapturing those original elements. Yeah, and and this is sort of the experience, would you say, of remembering that we are we are remembering some of those qualities in that recapturing of the of the experience of the childlike when when we are in childhood and and feeling you know maybe we're recapturing the vitality of our childhood in in this in this through our spiritual development that is you know somehow uh, aligned with that that experience of remembering that is what we we're remembering yeah yeah or maybe it might be more accurate to say recapturing or re rekindling mm -hmm. you know it's, it's something that that was always there and is always there but something that we've become alienated from yeah due to our egoic development there's probably some cultural conditioning as well that you know we go to school and we're trained to be intellectual and to think abstractly we're trained to kind of um uh repress our creativity and our natural spirituality but yeah it's you know all of these things once we transcend the ego once our self-boundaries become softer we recapture all of these things but we retain some of the benefits of of ego development too yeah yeah, I, I definitely like uh, I like the word recapture. I think when, when I think of the word remember, I think of uh, persona, this experience, this ego experience in in life as we are growing into uh, adulthood, and we are especially in modern times, our consciousness, our experience of self, our our awareness is so fractured. It is so. It is so uh, fractured and fragmented. And so the remembering is like putting my arm back on. It's like putting the pieces back together. And that, and that, and that, and that is like the, the idea of recapturing. Um, mm -hmm. We've let go of kind of the thing that is already, it, it is always in all, uh, there. It, it is always in still there. It's just, it's just, mm -hmm. uh, we've, we've kind of like disconnected from our relationship to it. And then we are recapturing yeah. that relationship to it so that we can live, you know, uh, more, more, more yeah. realized experiences of the collective integrativeness and connection. Mm. With yeah. It's a kind of reconnection. I mean, children are naturally connected. They, they don't have a sense of separation. They have this sense of participating in the world without being separated from it. Uh, yeah, and certainly, you know, we, we become disconnected as we become adults. And if we become awakened, we become reconnected. 
So in a sense, remembering, if you think of member in the sense of being a part of something, being a member of, of reality of the world, yeah. then remembering is a pretty good definition. It's like becoming a participant again, becoming a part of the world rather than a, a separate observer. Yeah, I like that a lot. Becoming a participant again. I did have uh, Dr. Jorge Freire on the podcast uh, some time ago. So um, you know, when we, when we talk about the embodied experience of that child, that they, they're embodying those qualities of, of, uh, you know, uh, those, the, the spiritual, uh, qualities that we are recapturing as we are. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what a lot of spiritual traditions, they talk about that, you know, they extol childhood as an ideal state, you know, in the Tao Te Ching, it says, um, what does it say? It says, return to the state of the infant and Jesus said, you must become as a little child if you want to enter the kingdom, kingdom of heaven, yeah. something like that. So yeah, I think, you know, these spiritual traditions, they recognize that. Now, they're, they're not saying that children are enlightened, but they, they know that there are, certain natural, there are some naturally spiritual qualities in children which we need to, to rekindle. Really cool. So, in in this same article, um, I was I was inspired by this term. You 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 started to speak about the or you wrote about the like uh, two kinds of spiritual experiences. And now I'm I'm probably starting to mix other articles as well that you've written. But um, you, you you use this term homeostatic disruption that I I sort of fell in love with. I really love uh, this idea of homeostatic disruption. I think it just applies so well. Some of the conversation that we've already had, I'm I'm seeing the the dynamic relationship between the uh, the microcosm and the macrocosm, the individual and the collective, and I, and I and I'm seeing how you know the 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 reason that the individual works on their spiritual awakening is to influence and impact and 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 in be, be a great demonstration and example and uh, a, a light for others to experience the same and see the benefits and see the see the value in and recognizing and being aware of our interconnectedness um this homeostatic disruption comes in the form of many things and when it when it uh, originally my interest in transpersonal psychology was exceptional human experiences just this idea that somebody could have a a very immediate transformation and a very immediate from one day to the next or one moment to the next that somebody could be just mm. like totally operating in their lives with a different set of beingness qualities maybe that that uh, that, that being caused catalyzed by a homeostatic disruption maybe of psychedelic substances originally i was interested in the psychedelic experience but that has matured and expanded um mm -hmm. to 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 encompass things and th that homeostatic disruption that we that maybe we get with a psychedelic induced by a a mm -hmm. medicine by a substance or by by an experience by a near-death experiences a car crash the, yeah. the traumatic experiences mm -hmm. that that do the same is really fascinating to me. And then this, this reintegration, this rekindling of a homo homeostatus, maybe this recapturing um, in a, in an efficient homeostatic uh, reintegration. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was really, I was, I've always been fascinated by um, what I call awakening experiences, like temporary spiritual experiences I, I used to have them myself. I still do, but you know, I had them originally when I was a teenager and I didn't really understand them. I'd have these moments of connection to my surroundings, these moments of feeling uplifted and feeling euphoric. And I mean, most of the time when I was a teenager, I was quite depressed and alienated, but I'd have these moments of euphoria when I when the world seemed to be incredibly alive and clouds and trees seemed to be sentient and everything seemed to be kind of vibrating in harmony, including me. So I, wanted to, I always wanted to understand these experiences. I always, I always collected examples of them, reports of them, and studied other people's collections of them. And I, I wanted to understand why they occur. And um, so, so I, I, I use the term homeostasis or homeostatic disruption to refer to one type of awakening experiences, which occurs when you know our physiology or, or our neurological functioning is disrupted quite significantly. 
And that's why people have always fasted to try to induce spiritual experiences. That's why people have inflicted pain on themselves like the ascetics always used to do. And, you know, people have uh, practiced uh, breathing, breath control, and people have taken psychedelic drugs, all, all to sort of disrupt our normal homeostasis so that we can slip out of our normal state of consciousness into this transcend, transcendent realm. And, um, but, but awakening, awakening experiences can also be caused by what I call an intensification stilling of life energy. That's when we induce a mood of intense relaxation, intense inner stillness, um, where our life energy intensifies. And once our life energy, our inner life energy, reaches a certain intensity, then we switch out of our normal automatic perception and we our, our normal self-boundaries seem to fade away. We feel connected to our surroundings. The world becomes a much more beautiful, uh, a much more real place and that there's actually a third category of um awakening experiences which, which i didn't actually consider at the time i wrote about this 20 years ago but but more recently i've realized that awakening experiences can also be induced by i mean i guess this is this is probably connected to homeostasis but you mentioned this too they can be induced by intense trauma by you know traumatic experiences such as bereavement such as a serious illness such as a period of depression or intense stress all of those, you know, psychological turmoil in general is quite a significant trigger of awakening experiences. Yeah, I, I think of those those experiences as like a psychological homeostatic disruption, and I think that yeah, the, while, yeah. while the while the the substances can be like physiologically disrupting, um, there also there's also the the phenomena the phenomena of the experience the phenomenology of the experience that 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 becomes sort of uh, disrupted and disintegrated uh, yeah. statically disintegrated so that it can be it can be reorganized with uh, with the help of uh, of of insights that maybe maybe the insights and the the uh, the knowingness that is found in those experiences is like in yeah. stuff it's like it, it was like hidden behind all the stuff that was there and then mm -hmm. and then as as you said with uh you 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 just articulated it so well i uh, I'll, I'll have to go back and, and take a look at that but it's like the i i have seen that the homeostatic disruption uh can happen to enlighten a person it can be an awakening experience um mm -hmm. and then also in in deep meditation it doesn't you, you are not required to use a psychedelic substance to experience an awakening that that a that a meditative experience a a a stilling of the the body mind and soul you know really deepening your experience to stillness and silence and mm, the in betweenness and the nothingness really really building your relationship there can also be that same awakening experiences so oh, i like yeah, putting it as three different ways as well yeah certainly i mean that's why meditation can bring about awakening experiences but also contact with net one of the biggest triggers of awakening experiences is contact with nature yeah. and that's because contact with nature has a Got a meditative effect. It stills our life energy, intensifies our life energy. It slows down our our mental chatter. So yeah, I think you know there there are there are a whole class of awakening experiences related to to inner stillness and, and relaxation. Yeah. So so I sort of see that as you know maybe maybe just like trying to use the same term for all of these you know and applying it to all these. Uh, maybe there is a there there's a uh, a problem of there there's kind of like a, it it becomes a little bit too ambiguous it it, it it begins to lose its defining qualities but but yeah. I even see like in in that sort of stillness experience there's a because 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 what is the homeostasis uh if if the homeostasis is is of a uh of a non-awakened like the somnambulistic sort of mm. sleepwalkingness if that is the current homeostasis then whether you go up or down it, it's still it still you know comes full circle and it and it does still yeah disrupt the uh the original oh, definitely disruption. yeah 
Yeah, maybe maybe disruption isn't perhaps the right term. It's a kind of like a transcendence, perhaps. Of yeah. I mean, you know, the the normal human consciousness is produced by psychological structures and psychological processes. You know, what what most human beings perceive as reality is actually the product of their psychological processing or and their psychological structures. So the kind of like the familiarized automatic perception which most people have, which most people experience, is produced by what I call a desensitizing mechanism, which kind of switches off our attention to reality. And also the sense of separation, which most people experience is produced by, you know, a psychological boundary, a sense of psychological boundary. So in certain situations, those psychological structures are disrupted or transcended or undone, if you like. And that's when we transcend our normal perception. That's when we shift into, you know, an awakened or an awakening experience. Or maybe if it's a, you know, um, if it's an ongoing long-term process, we slowly switch into an, an ongoing state of wakefulness in which it becomes our normal mode of being. Mm -hmm. do, do you, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about your perspective on this term, uh, non-symbolic consciousness. Um, do, do you, are you familiar with the, the work of the non-symbolic consciousness society, society for non-symbolic consciousness? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. This is like, uh, I... Combs, uh, this is Combs and, uh, Jeffrey Martin. Yeah. Jeffrey Martin. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I read Jeffrey Martin's book, The Finders a while ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the only thing I find a bit puzzling about it is that in my research, I've done a lot of research on people who. Uh, experience wakefulness as an ongoing state. Mm -hmm. um, I guess that's equivalent to what they call non-symbolic consciousness. Yeah. Um, and it's equivalent to what people call enlightenment. Um, but I found there are lots of different degrees of wakefulness. It, it, can, it, can, it can occur in an intense level or a less intense level. And it, I don't think it's, it's uncommon at a less intense level. And I think a lot of people go through intense psychological turmoil undergo a shift into a, a stable state of wakefulness. I sometimes call that transformation through turmoil. You know, it can happen after bereavement or a diagnosis of cancer, a long period of addiction, long period of depression. People sometimes, it's as if their normal identity dissolves and a new identity emerges, a new kind of spiritually awakened identity emerges to replace it. But um in my in my research, it's incredibly rare that anybody experiences uh, complete, you know, mental quietness, a complete lack of thought. What is much more common is that people, that people definitely experience a lower level of thought activity. You know, maybe ten or twenty percent of what they're used to, but it doesn't disappear altogether. The most important aspects of it is that people do not identify with their thought activity. To them. Thinking is it's just like a kind of a physiological process which takes place a bit like, you know, the circulation of the blood or digestion. It just happens and they don't identify with it. So they don't de derive their, their identi identity from it. They don't allow their mood to be affected by the content of their thoughts. So, yeah, so in my research, you know, to experience, you know, a completely non-symbolic consciousness is, you know, I don't think I've ever... I've ever you know, interviewed or investigated anybody who experiences that. Even the, even the most highly awakened people I've interviewed, they still experience some degree of thought activity, yeah, all, but just at a very low level. It's interesting that uh, I believe uh, Dr. Martin's work. I I, re I really love uh, Dr. Martin, uh, but I I am always uh, so. Um, kind of co connected and 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 also disconnected. I, I really connected with is the research interests and disconnected with this term non-symbolic consciousness. It just uh, to to uh, you know release the world of symbol like like it mm -hmm. e e even even the the experience th that is you know being uh, described as non-symbolic is a symbol <laughs> like it itself. Yeah is is symbolic of this of this uh greater landscape of interconnectedness in the in the universe you know this mm. universal uh connected awareness but um uh so so i i i find it just uh troubling to um to uh use the term that way but i do see it as as this uh as this knowingness and to experience a state and build 
closer relationship to it, there there is a, a knowingness that does allow for a softening of the content of the mind. Uh, it does mm-hmm. allow for a, a lowering of the intensity of the thinking mind that creates all the content that gets in the way of, of our of our authentic self-knowing. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. Yeah, there's, there's certainly, you know, w- one of the biggest shifts in awakening is an identity shift from, you know, the self which is derived from thinking to a self which stands apart from the, the process of thinking, the kind of witnessing or observing self. That's definitely a, a major shift. And just that, that process of disidentification from the ego, you know, there are so many things which come with that. You know, it, it brings so many positive changes in our lives. But it, that, that's probably the, you know, the, the most important aspect of spiritual awakening, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there is, uh, there is recently been a sort of homeostatic disruption collectively, societally. And that I would say, you know, over the last three years, we've been, you know, stuck in homes, allowed to go out of our homes, back in our homes. We've, we've had these, these tremendous experiences of in and out and, and just being so disrupted. And it always seems like a new page is turning, a new chapter. It just, we're, we're always in transition. And uh, r- right now, our global economy um is is really in flux and 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 sort of confused and disrupted and there's there's a lot of uh powers that would maybe be described uh, as as uh, influenced uh disconnectedly uh disconnectedly influential powers uh that are that are in charge and trying to make make things uh happen putting the parts together uh, in the ways that um, that the, these powers know how. Um, it, what what do you what do you think is the what what is the integration process for humanity collectively? What what is mm, what mm. is the uh, remembering or the recapturing of the of the connectedness collectively? We, we I think we are going through a critical stage in you know the development of our species. You know, we're living in a time of crisis, possibly close to cataclysms, you know, certainly environmentally or ecologically, we're quite close to cataclysms if they are not already occurring. Um, but there's a, you know, awakening is often connected to crisis. You know, when, it's when people are diagnosed with cancer that they awaken. It's when people suffer from intense depression that they reevaluate their lives and reorder their, their priorities. And so something something similar may be happening happening collectively. It may, may be connected to the trauma of the pandemic. You know, the, the interesting there have been some studies showing that the pandemic has led to collective post traumatic growth for, for communities, and certainly the the threat of ecological ecological catastrophe has become more real and is probably affecting people's perspective. So I think that possibly in the same way that somebody who's diagnosed with cancer undergoes a, an awakening or a transformation that may be occurring collectively. You know, I think there is a process of awakening taking place collectively and our collective crises you know, are, 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 one, are one of the triggers of that. So, you know, I think there, there is actually research showing that spiritual experiences or mystical experiences have become more common over the past few decades. Um, certainly in, in terms of cultural trends, the interest in spirituality and self-development is one of the the main trends of our time it's probably exponentially increasing you know that's one probably one of the biggest trends i've noticed in my lifetime you know since i've been an adult is the the increasing popular interest in spirituality so there are there are lots of positive trends that are taking place and also in my research i, I you know i mentioned the phenomenon of transformation through turmoil when people go through crises in their lives and undergo a transformation I mean, I've, I'm, I'm constantly amazed at how common this is. Almost every week, somebody writes to me to say that they've undergone this kind of transformation that I've researched and written about. And it's often people who don't know anything about spirituality in a traditional context. They don't really understand what's happened to them. They just know that they've undergone this shift and the world seems like a different place. Other people, their relationships feel different. 
everything feels different, but they don't really understand why. Sometimes they, they even suspect that they may have gone crazy. But, you know, eventually they realize that they've not, that they've undergone some kind of pos- some kind of positive transformation. So all of these trends are taking place, you know, possibly in response to the crises we are facing. Yeah. Is, is there, is there a, is there a value in a person like that uh, having experienced an awakening experience and not, not quite having maybe the, the language around it? Is there a value in them having more information, knowing more in the, in the, uh, in the language and understanding of that, of their experience? Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's really important to, to have that context to make sense of it. I mean, I, um, I interviewed one guy and used to be quite friendly with a guy who at the time I spoke to him, he was in his uh, late eighties and he, he underwent his spiritual, spiritual awakening when he was 29 in about 1950. And he had no idea what happened to him. He had no language to no concepts to describe what had happened to him. And it took him years to understand it for a long time. He thought he was crazy. He tried to speak to, to religious people about it and they thought he was crazy. So it took him. It actually took him nine years before he met somebody who could understand what happened to him. He met a Buddhist by chance in London who said, "Oh, you sound like you're enlightened. You know, this is pure Buddhism. What you're what you're speaking about." But now, you know, it wouldn't take nine years. It'd take probably nine days to to understand what happened to you because you, there's so much information available through the internet or through books or through other spiritual teachings and spiritual teachers. So that's a really positive development development that people can undergo awakenings and fairly quickly they can find a context to make sense of them rather than being confused or doubting their sanity. So that's definitely, you know, as you probably know through your work in spiritual emergence, spiritual emergencies, it's easy for awakenings to be pathologized in the wrong, you know, if you you encounter an incomprehending psychiatrist or, you know, so... There's less there's less danger of that of that happening now than probably ever before, even though it's obviously still still a possibility, unfortunately. Yeah, I I, I would I would say you know definitely a significant less likelihood that you would not that you would not be able to find an outlet or find some some language to uh, c- continue to develop and 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 learn about your experience uh, without being impacted by some external circumstances but um there is still like a great uh amount of that as well the uh, oh yeah accepting that experience or there 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 is a there is a uh, a pathological paradigm uh at foot in psychology in psychiatry oh, definitely mm. You know, so yeah, um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. These things are happening. What, what, what does, what does you, you know? Is it do we do we focus on the individual re- recapturing their awakening, recapturing their connectedness in order to have that uh, uh you know a massive, a massive uh, influence impact on the ways that uh, the whole dynamic is is working. To a degree, certainly, yeah. But we also create an environment, a more supportive environment, which allows people to make sense of their experiences. I mean, I'm, I'm at, I've met so many people in my research who went through this period of incomprehension, you know, and it sometimes took them maybe a few months to understand what happened to them. And, and you, you know, if, if you don't understand, if you go through an awakening and don't really understand it, you can repress it. You know, you can force it to the back of your mind or your being. And try to, you know, try to forget that it happened. But, you know, that doesn't work. It always returns. It will always come to the forefront again. And, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's, it's certainly a, a process of increasing understanding and acceptance. I mean, even in my own case, you know, I, I was probably, as I said before, I, I had spiritual experiences at a young age and I had no idea what to make of them. And I thought, you know, they, they're they were more evidence that I was crazy. And it took me a few years to to realize that I wasn't crazy, that you know, that I'd undergone positive experiences, transformational experiences, spiritual experiences. But you know, it was only once I read books on mysticism that I that I, that I learned that. Yeah. So 
you, what, what were some of these uh, transformative experiences in your life? Or do you have, do you have experiences that you, I, I, I know, I know you have books on reflections and poetry and meditative exercises. Do you have, do you have certain direction that you, that you uh, tend towards for people's spiritual awakening? Maybe, maybe something you experience uh, as well. Well, um, in my book, The Leap, I suggest that there are three ways in which awakening can occur. The first is when it's natural, when people are just naturally spiritually awakened. They don't need to meditate. They don't need to undergo a transformation experience due to stress or turmoil. They just are naturally awakened as their normal state. Or maybe they just don't lose the natural wakefulness of children like other people do. Uh, the second way is when people follow paths of awakening so that awakening occurs gradually over many years through meditation or following a spiritual path the third way is when it occurs suddenly and spontaneously which is usually when it occurs in the context of psychological turmoil like bereavement or diagnosis of cancer and so forth but i think i think i probably had a a degree of natural wakefulness that was just inside me and it manifested itself when i was a teenager and all it needed really was to be understood and accepted, which, you know, which is, was quite a difficult process. So for me, it was a question of kind of nurturing my natural wakefulness and stabilizing it, uh, which took, you know, even once I accepted and understood it, it took quite a long time to stabilize it and integrate it. I think a lot of spiritual people have a problem kind of integrating when they're younger, they have a problem kind of integrating into ordinary life, functioning in normal society, partly because normal society is, you know, and antithetical to spirituality in many ways. So it took me a long time to learn to function in normal society and to integrate my my spirituality into everyday life. So yeah, my development has been a question of doing that and sort of stabilizing and exploring in more depth and detail. So the the exploration that one goes through, you you so you encourage exploration of self through meditation yeah yeah i mean uh, i think it's it's true in every in every case in every human being's case that you know once we quieten the the ego mind once we go below the surface of the mind the surface thought activity of the mind everyone is capable of touching into you know an essential spirituality within them you know is that it exists in everybody no matter how how full of turmoil your mind is no matter how full of discord the surface of your mind is there is always a harmony beneath the surface of your mind so in my poems or my meditations i encourage people to go beneath the surface of their mind to attune to their natural harmony and once you're attuned to that natural harmony within yourself you also attune to the harmony of the world because at that level there is no separation between you and the world you touch into the essential oneness of all things you touch into a, a pure consciousness which doesn't just belong to you it's the source of everything and it pervades everything so yeah i i try to encourage people to touch into that essential oneness and that pure consciousness that's awesome that that's so well said um yeah thank you so much for that so uh how did you how did you develop this relationship with Eckhart Tolle Eckhart Tolle has uh has has had some like really great things to say about your books you you've become a part of the is it the like the Eckhart Tolle collection some of your books have been a part of the Eckhart Tolle collection um how did you develop this relationship well um it goes back to 2005 almost 20 years ago I wrote, a, I published a book called The Fall, which was my first, I think it was my first sort of proper publication with a, a kind of mainstream publisher. And coincidentally, the, the publication of The Fall was on the, the exa exactly the same day as Eckhart Tolle's book, A New Earth, if you remember that one. So I, so I thought, wow, this is a coincidence. They were both published on exactly the same day. When I read A New Earth, I thought, wow, this is actually quite similar to my book before. <laughs> it, it's sort of dealing with the same, you know, the, the same themes. And I mean, the main theme of both books is um, the kind of um, the pathological effects of the ego in, in human history and how the ego, um, you know, 
causes such chaos in human behavior and, and in human society. So I sent a copy of the fall to, to Eckhart's office, you know, and not expecting to hear anything back. But um, a few months later, I got an email from his assistant saying, this, I'm Eckhart Tolle's assistant. He, he really loves your book, The Fall. He'd like to talk to you about it and, and help you promote it. So, oh, fantastic. So I spoke to him on the phone a few days later and, and then he was so helpful. He helped me to, he recommended The Fall to his fans and his newsletters and, it, you know, as a result, it became, you know, it, it sold really well, gained a lot of attention. And we were, we remained in contact. And I mean, I, mean, I think, you know, Eckhart is, um, some people don't realise, but he's actually a very intellectual guy. He, he was doing a PhD in England, a PhD in philosophy when he had his awakening. So he has a, he has a very acute intellect and he's very well read in, in philosophy and psychology and I think that's that's one of the reasons why his teachings are so effective because they they have this kind of intellectual clarity about them, which is combined with this spiritual clarity or spiritual purity. So when we became quite friendly, I he invited me to Canada to um, to film an interview for his his TV internet TV channel, which he had at that time. And um, yeah, we just remained in friendly contact ever since. Um, and in 2014, he told me that he was starting a publishing company. He wanted to publish one of my books of poetry as his first uh, publications. I thought, wow, that's that's fantastic. So yeah, he's been he's been really helpful to me. And um, I don't hear much from him these from him these days. But we, you know, whenever we meet, we have a, you know, he always feels like um, you know a great occasion. And he's he's so lovely and so kind and such a kind of warm, benevolent person. That, that's awesome. It, it, it definitely comes through in his writing that um, it's not just a, not just a spiritual man, but an academic, a, a philosopher um, definitely comes through in the writing. So, um, yeah. so that, that's really awesome that you had this this uh, blessed opportunity to uh, meet and, and match with such a uh, such a. Uh, a, a notable figure in the field of uh in 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 spirituality yeah yeah i think i think that combination of uh, intellectual rigor and deep spirituality is not very common but it, but when it happens it's incredibly powerful you know i think the buddha you know he was somebody who had a an incredibly cute intellect and this spiritual power um so it's great when that when it happens i think you know ken wilbur had that too Certainly in in some of his books, you know, there is this kind of tremendous intellectual strength and clarity combined with the spiritual insight. You know, it's in, incredibly powerful. Yeah, Ken Wilber uh, d does an amazing job of that. I think I think definitely th this is this is the the way of the field of transpersonal psychology is to have both of those things applied and integrated in a in a way that is. Uh, uh, beautiful. I, I I really have always resonated with this idea of spiritual pragmatism, like like making the spirituality practical, and you do that by grounding it in scientific rigor. Um, in this yeah. field, it's a of great value to humanity and and the world at large. So yeah. Um, so I I um I uh, oftentimes people that are going to be tuning into this are are uh are scholars they, they are these kind of people that have this um, this scientific rigorous intellectual prowess and curiosity um and they're interested in the spiritual aspects of of life and their own awakening and 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 beyond so how how do you how do you stay in alignment with your writing practice with like your your uh practices of spiritual exploration how do you continue over over these years and all, all of this research how do you continue to deepen that how do you continue to uh be such a prolific uh scholar uh, in the mm -hmm. i i try to remain open in i don't really feel in control of, of what i write um i mean poetry is a good example you know I, I never i never try to write poetry it just sort of comes when it comes and sometimes it doesn't come but when it comes, you know, I just allow it to flow through. And um, so I think it's important to remain open and, and not to be too conscious about it. Um, so I just try to, you know, I, I meditate. 
Um, I love to exercise. I love running and swimming and cycling and all of that stuff. And I, most of all, I love contact with nature. I love to go walking and and uh, climbing. So I think all of these all of these things they they help to keep me open and help to you know allow creativity to flow through me. And um, it's about making space as well. I mean, sometimes um, sometimes you know it's about allowing yourself the opportunity to opportunity to be creative you know like you know not getting distracted keeping spaces of time open in your life so i do that you know turning turning the internet off for a few hours you know so you don't get distracted and um yeah just being you know you have to honor your creativity you you have to respect it you know if you if you don't take it seriously if you you know, don't treat it with care and respect. It may not flow. So you have to be really respectful towards it and treat it with the seriousness and, you know, care that it deserves. Yeah. You, you seriously have a good time <laughs> as you're being creative. Seriously have a good time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful. You know, uh, there's nothing for me. You know, there are, a lot, there are lots of kind of, entertainments that i enjoy there are lots of activities that i enjoy but for me the most you know fulfilling activity of all is writing you know just to sit down at my computer and allow my creativity to express itself you know there's nothing that i enjoy more than than that that that's beautiful thank you uh, thank you so much for all that you have written and all of that you have expressed through you all of your uh, creativity. You you have made a massive impact on the field of transpersonal psychology. And as that quote from Eckhart told you, you, you are making very important contributions to the, the spiritual awakening collectively. Um, and so, um, you know, thank you for all of your work. Uh, I really appreciate this conversation. There's so much value in it. I, I think that other people will, will uh, be uh, very uh, surprised, enlightened, uh, feel very inspired to um, to uh, continue to follow your work. Um, this uh, latest book, Disconnected. I, I, I love I love the title, Dis, and, and then and then capitalized Connected. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it, it really um, it, it really just like points to the uh, to the both and the there, there's a grayness there that I, that I like. Mm -hmm. I, I like all of those things. So um i uh i i i thank you for uh allowing this space and uh, giving your time to this conversation um is there anywhere mm -hmm. else that you want people to go uh well thank you first of all travis that was a, i really enjoyed our conversation it was very very fruitful yeah. and you know good luck with your endeavors um yeah well people can can um look at my website which is stephenmtaylor.com stephen with a v m for mark stephenmtaylor.com and um you know i have lots of poems and articles and other information on my, on my website and also I'm, I'm on social media on facebook or or twitter awesome cool so uh thank you so much i know it's uh getting dark there in the uk <laughs> yeah. i can see it now <laughs> yeah i thank you so it's, much for uh, the conversation Stephen. yeah thank you travis you think who is this man talking to? You